The passage for today is Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For he is the one about whom Isaiah the prophet had spoken. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing made from camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, as well as all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan, were going out to him. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the storehouse. But the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? So Jesus replied to him, Let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him, after Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son. In him I take great delight. The word of the Lord. Good morning. <clears throat> I want to add my welcome to that of Mike Stroh that you heard this morning. Grateful to be here. My name is Mike Traven. I'm um, one of three pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. The other pastor named Mike. You can distinguish us by our facial hair choices. Um, <clears throat> just yesterday, my two youngest children sitting on the couch looked at me and said, Dad, um, Mike Stroh looks good with a beard, but beard, but you don't. He looks good with a beard too, but uh, he looks good with a beard, but you don't. So uh, I won't be growing a beard in this season. I'm, I'm certain my other co-pastor, she won't be growing one either. So that's how you can, that's how you can uh, keep us uh, straight in your heads. Well, we continue 
in our series this morning in Matthew's gospel, as we heard this morning. And as the this gospel letter was introduced to us last week, Matthew, we know, is a Jewish Christian writing to a Jewish Christian audience toward the end of the first century, many decades after Christ's ministry and death and resurrection. He's writing to this Jewish Christian audience with some distinctively Jewish Christian concerns. Concerns as to who is Jesus and how does he relate to the faith of their fathers. What does all this mean? And and Matthew's gospel focuses, as we heard last week, on on Jesus' identity as the incarnate Son of God the Father. And we, we can imagine these Christians interacting with a predominantly Jewish culture and and even having ongoing conversations, sort of their friends for good, if you will, with the synagogue across the street. And as we find ourselves thousands of years later in our own season of life as a as a covenant community of American Christians, we can identify perhaps, with with what it's like wrestling for decades to rightly discern the ways of God and what it looks like to be the church. And as followers of Christ and as students of Matthew's gospel ourselves, our focus rightly remains on Christ as the perfect fulfillment of all of God's promises through all of human history. Well, as independent Bible churches go, we're somewhat of an anomaly with our attention that we pay to the church calendar. And you might notice that the vestments of the sanctuary this Sunday have changed. We've progressed out of the season of Christmas or Christmas tide for you liturgical calendar purists and into the season known as Epiphany. This calendar invites us to order our lives and after the life and ministry of Jesus by, by being mindful of and, and participating in the rhythm of preparation and celebration, feasting and fasting, growth and renewal that this calendar calls us to. And so this past Thursday was the day of Epiphany. And so we, we left Christmas and entered into the season which which celebrates and reflects upon the, the revelation of God as fully human in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our Christ candle remains lit, signifying the light that drew the Magi to find the Christ child and to signify the light of the world that is Jesus Christ that continues to burn 2,000 some odd later, years later, rather. Well, one could say that Matthew's entire gospel, and, and all of the gospels for that matter, are an epiphany revealing Christ as the continuation and fulfillment of the prophetic promises that we encounter throughout our reading of the Old Testament. Jesus was, is, and forever shall be the fulfillment of God's promises. And, and foundational to this gospel of Matthew is his clarification of the identity and mission of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Anointed One, the King of Israel and the Lord of the Church, 
the Son of God who came to inaugurate, as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. Christ came to earth to make the kingdom of God a reality in our ever-present, everyday lives. And so today is uniquely on the church calendar the a holy day. It's the baptism of the Lord's Sunday, and it, it, it uniquely aligns with our scripture for this morning. And it marks the beginning, this baptism of Jesus, it marks the beginning of his public ministry. Well, in our passage that we heard this morning, and thank you, Kara, for, for your great reading of that. In our passage this morning, we're introduced to a man called John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And we know from reading the other Gospels that John is the son of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. We read of this in the first chapter of Luke. Well, John the Baptist called for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, and he administered a water baptism to those who would receive it. And John's baptism was peculiar to his time. It it was not and is not a Christian baptism as we practice that sacrament in the church today. John's baptism and and baptisms performed by his disciples and the disciples of Jesus before the Lord's crucifixion, these baptisms bound its subjects to repentance and not to the faith of Christ as, as our baptism binds us to our faith and our community. And, and so a question we hope to answer this morning is, is what does being bound to repentance mean for us as modern day disciples of the risen Christ who are bound to our faith to Jesus through our own rite of baptism? And perhaps even more peculiar at at first glance as we look at the scripture this morning is this baptism of Jesus, this very holy day that we observe in the church calendar today. What, What was the significance then and what is its significance for our lives today? That Jesus, fully God and fully human, that he who knew no sin was baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What does this mean for our lives? Well, I have essentially a single point of a sermon today. It doesn't mean it'll be any shorter, but but if you remember nothing, I hope that you could remember this, that in, in the same way that a heartbeat is the vital sign of a physical life, repentance is the vital sign of a spiritual life devoted to God. Our salvation depends on our repentance. And our repentance is a prerequisite for our fellowship with God, the scriptures tell us. In one sense, it's a, it's a proof of our identity as Christians. And it's, it's only through repentance that we can truly flourish in the kingdom of God. God. One can only experience the power of God's grace by repenting and by following Christ and by becoming his disciple. 
Would you bow your heads briefly with me in prayer? Father, we just come before you this morning so grateful for your word that's been passed down through the centuries by faithful stewards. And I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would superintend my words and that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truths that you have for us today. Amen. Well, in these first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, or excuse me, in the first four verses of our chapter three today, Matthew writes, he says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. It seems like this odd just set of contextual clues that bind one part of the story to the other, but it's it's rich in significance for the story and, and, and of who Jesus is and what it means to the people who are reading and hearing this letter. Matthew uses this phrase, in those days. It's an indefinite period of time that, that describes this point in time some years after Jesus and his family had returned from Egypt and settled in Nazareth. And John now comes on the scene and he makes a public appearance in the wilderness of Judea. And he begins preaching, preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven has come near and repentance is required. Matthew makes this statement, as I said, to, to link John's statement to the prophetic fulfillment of verses prior with what follows here in the passage. You see, um, John's place in the story is, is part of God's prophetic fulfillment of his promises to his people. John the Baptist was not a complete unknown. He shows up in the story for the first time for us here. But people, many people would have known who he was. We know who he is. Because we have this other gospel account in Luke where the angel Gabriel appears to his father and tells him that his wife is going to bear a son, that he should name him John, and that he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. John undoubtedly knows who he is. I'm certain his father many times in John's upbringing shared the story of how the angel appeared to him and and God's call on John's life. John knew who he was, what his calling was. And and we know from the scriptural account that John had disciples. There were men who were devoted to following him and learning from him. And so John just wasn't some weird guy wearing weird clothes, eating weird things, who showed up in some strange place and began preaching. Jesus himself. And this gospel account tells us that John was significant. So we read in Matthew 11, Jesus tells the crowds that among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
Well, as one calling out in desolate places to herald the presence of the Lord, John has has shown up on the scene here in the Judean wilderness. And we're, we're prone to overlook this particular location as just a, a simple context clue for the setting of the story. But, but the wilderness would be recognized by these Jewish people as, as this place of great spiritual significance. Throughout their history, God had led them and appeared to them in the wilderness. God gave them the law. In the wilderness. The wilderness was a place where God took people to form them spiritually. And it's the place where the prophets lived and where the prophets came from to call the people back to a place of repentance and covenant faithfulness. That John would appear in the wilderness preaching his message would not have been seen as strange and insignificant by the people. In fact, it was rather exciting. But do you and I look at the wilderness and the desolate places of our lives in the same way? Do you and I inhabit a posture that that looks on these places or experiences as something of, of significance to our spiritual lives? Well, when I read the scriptures, I'm, I'm left with the certainty that both our present and eternal livelihood is better served when, when we learn and grow to look at the desolate places we find ourselves in as the very places where we can be absolutely certain that God is with us and at work in our lives and in the lives of our community. And so we would would do well to ask ourselves, what what wilderness or desolate place is God leading us through in order to form our hearts and our character? Well, John shows up and he's he's manifests all the distinctive marks of the prophets. The, The simple clothing and the simple diet of locusts and honey of the prophets were were symbolic of their ministry. And, and John has, he's shown up in the uniform of the prophets with the, the breath of a prophet, speaking the words of a prophet. And he was a true successor of the, of the prophetic line. And his message was, was like that of the prophet Amos that he had preached in the same region 800 years earlier. And, and, and so people would recognize him. And, and his particular appearance was more recognizable to the people of Israel as the prophet Elijah, who over the years they had been told was the one who they were looking for, who would herald the coming of the Messiah. Elijah the Tishbite, who we see in First and Second Kings, who, who came out of the desert of Gilead to, to reprove the Israelite kings who, who were chasing after a kingship more like the world instead of a, a, a monarch. These prophets came to reprove kings and to call the people to repentance. So in this Old Testament prophetic tradition that we see in the very last verses that are recorded in the Old Testament as it's ordered in our Bible, in Malachi, Elijah, his appearance was associated with the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord 
would come to rescue his people. And so many were convinced, as we read in these gospel accounts, that that either John or Jesus were the expected prophet. And we read later in Matthew's gospel that Jesus said that John went forth in the spirit of Elijah as the symbolic fulfillment of the prophet's mission. So John's appearance is significant. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah as we read in verse 3, as we heard in our call to worship this morning. And his, his ministry is to prepare the hearts of the people for their Messiah by calling them to repentance. And what was the response? It, it was sensational by all accounts. Some scholars estimate that between a, a quarter of a million and half a million Jews were baptized by John and his disciples at this time. And what is the repentance that John was calling the people to? And, and, and what, what is its consequence for our spiritual life and formation? Well, this term repentance that we encounter in the Old and New Testaments carries the sense of a, of a change of thinking and attitudes towards sin and God. And the, the changes in behavior that result... In the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, we have this imagery of a, of a change of direction or the, or the choice of a road, a turning away from a road that leads to destruction and a, and a turning toward a road characterized by obedience. And it, it has an emphasis on actions as, as demonstrative of true repentance. In the Greek language of the New Testament, the imagery is different. It's, it's a radical change of thinking accompanied by a sense of remorse that leads to changed lives evidenced by changed behaviors. And, and this sense of remorse or regret for sin is, is not toxic guilt or shame that produces changed behavior, but, but it's godly sorrow. It's, it's godly grief. It, These actions are an outflowing of true remorse for our sin and a desire to turn toward God. Writing of the sorrow caused by his severe letter to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. You see, friends, our repentance is is this cooperative act of turning and converting. It's... This cooperation between the approach of God and a sovereign act of his mercy to reveal our sin to us and his desire that we would make a conscious decision to turn toward him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Where, where does God require our repentance? I think is an important question for each of us to reflect on. Where where does God require my repentance? 
your repentance, our repentance as the church, universal, our repentance as this church on this corner. Where does God require our repentance so that we can prepare a way for him and make his path straight on this swath of land that's been granted to us here in this kingdom. Well, we see in verses 5 and 6 that the, the people recognize his appearance as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and, and this initiation of a new era in Israel's history. And, and a great number of people are coming out to see him and hear him. And this scripture tells us they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized by him. You see, in, in both the Old Testament and New Testament, confession belongs to repentance. And it's, it's a requirement for divine forgiveness. Without repentance, brothers and sisters, without an acknowledgement of our sin and a turning away from it, God can't extend himself to us in ongoing relationship. There's a great prophecy or promise that's given in the book of Isaiah in chapter 59. It says, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Well, as I said before, John's, John's baptism was peculiar to his time. Baptism in the Jewish sense in this time was this ritual rite of Jewish purification or a a Jewish rite of ritual purification. It was, but it was distinct in that it was ritual for non-Jewish proselytes only. That is, Gentiles who were becoming Jews, proselytes. And so they underwent this ritual baptism for their purification. It symbolized forgiveness and spiritual purity and blessing. And it, and it was often repeated for the life of a proselyte. Well, John's baptism, baptism rather, was, was different. John was calling for this single act that bound its participants to their repentance. And, and implicit in his message and his baptism was this proposition that, that Jews could no longer count on their Jewishness for their salvation. Merely being the descendants of Abraham wasn't what saved them. And so the Jews were coming from all over the region to be baptized by John. And, th- and this was extraordinary. And that caught the attention of some people who were less enthusiastic about John's message and his methods and his mission. And so we see in verses 7 through 11 that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up and they're suspicious of John's message and his methods, this idea that one must confess their sins and submit their hearts to be cleansed was was offensive to them. That they would be called to a place of being mindful of of their fallenness as human beings and, and to the higher place that God was calling them was offensive to their flesh. I'm reminded of a time when I was in the Marine Corps, um, the mid-1990s, there was a a period of time where the the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the, 
the four-star general in charge of the Marine Corps, issued a little plastic card called a Core Values Card. And the order was all Marines had to have this on their person at all times and to look at it and reflect upon it. And on this card was a reminder of, of the values that the Marine Corps stood for and what distinguished Marines in terms of their character. And I remember being issued this card and I was offended. I don't need this card to remind me of who I am or who I thought I was. But the reality is that card offended me because I didn't resemble much of what was on that card on the inside. On the outside, I modeled it, but on the inside, I was corrupt. And being called to a place of of acknowledging my need to be reminded of the heart and character that I was being called to was offensive. And so like me, these, these Sadducees and Pharisees show up and John recognizes them for who they are. They're the, they're the leaders of the Jewish culture in, in Roman-ruled Palestine. They're the people of power and significance. They're the religious leaders, and, and they were two very different sets of people. But John, as we see in verse 7, he doubts the sincerity of their motivation for coming because he responds to them by calling them a brood of vipers, suspecting that that they're both cunning and, and a source of spiritual death to the people, not life. And so he tells them in verse 8, he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, if repentance is the vital sign of a living faith, it's the fruit of this repentance that is what we should see. But But what does that look like? Well, in a different account in a different gospel of this same passage that we're looking at here in Matthew, in the gospel of Luke, the crowds ask John the Baptist, they say, what then shall we do? And he tells the people to share their food and clothing. He tells the tax collectors not to collect more than they're authorized. He tells the Roman soldiers not to extort money from the people. And that little context clue right there tells you that not just Jews were coming to be baptized by John, but, but Gentiles too. You see, the, the fruit of our repentance is evidenced by our, our generosity, our hospitality, our honesty, our gentleness, and our contentment with our situation in life that, that God has placed us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says that a faith that isn't evidenced by our actions is dead. And he argues that, that just as the evidence of biological life in the human body, respiration, circulation, that, that that's the evidence of biological life, the evidence of saving faith is acts of justice and mercy that arise spontaneously. From a changed life. Our profession of faith, our spiritual lineage, our baptism, our membership in a church, our record of attendance, the number of activities that that we're involved in, those are not the things that save us. 
Those are not the things that God is looking for and at to reveal the state of our hearts. A sincere repentance and our obedience that flows outward as a sincere demonstration of our faith is what demonstrates which Lord we have submitted our lives to. And John tells these Sadducees and these Pharisees that every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, in verses 11 and 12, then John, John points them to Jesus as the agent of both salvation for those who put their trust in him. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John, who baptized with water, he points to Christ who baptizes us with the purifying agents of the Spirit and fire. A single, once and for all, purifying baptism. We are bound to our faith in Christ when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit at our conversion and we're continually purified when we yield to the same fire of this same Holy Spirit which lives inside our hearts. But this yielding to the purifying work of the Spirit is a it's a lifelong and often challenging process. Challenging because we want the big and dramatic moves of God that, that, that fit our own expectations and our own timelines of how God should be moving in our lives and in our church and in our country and in this world. Yet most often God's work is found in the ways that defy the expectations and the desires that we place upon him. I'm borrowing here from a theologian who's of Asian descent. He he looks at God and the words of God through a different lens that's refreshing, I think, to Western eyes and the way we look at it. He was one of the most influential Asian Christian theologians of the 21st century. His name is Kosuke Koyama. He wrote a book called The Three Mile an Hour God. Three miles an hour being the speed at which human beings walk. And he wrote, he says, love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed to which we are accustomed It goes on in the depths of our life, whether we notice or not, at three miles an hour. It's the speed we walk and therefore the speed, the love of God walks. In a different part in his book, he says we must believe in Jesus against all of our own speeds by trusting in the speed of the promises of God. 
Well, the people have shown up to John's baptism wondering if he's the Messiah. And, and next we see is at the end of our passage here that, that Jesus walks at the speed of God into the wilderness to the spot on the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And we know from John's question that Jesus presenting himself to be baptized is very counter to John's own expectations of what God is doing and should be doing. This is the wilderness, not the temple. It's God showing up in the wilderness. Yet, where the kingdom work is ongoing, Christ is present. And so John recognizes Jesus as the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. And yet, Jesus counters John's expectations and John's protest by saying that it must be so now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus shows up to be baptized by John and John says, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And so now Christ, who is perfect and without sin and had nothing to confess and repent of, Christ submits to the baptism of John. And his participation in this important moment in salvation history is is so incredible to be seen. The one who is both fully God and fully human, being exactly who he is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's the one who is present and identifies with all of the experiences of his image bearers and in their moment of repentance. And so Christ goes into the water and is baptized. And how does God respond to Jesus? Well, the scripture reads, it says, the heavens were opened to him and the spirit rested on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, in the same way for us, When we walk in obedience to God and the faith that the speed of his promises is is wholly sufficient, God affirms to you and I through his spirit that that we are his beloved and, and, and that he is pleased with us. And as the people through whom God chose to reveal himself to the world, the The Israelites, they too had experienced God in various ways for hundreds and hundreds of years in accordance with his sovereign will and promises. And they enjoyed the blessings of obedience and they endured the curses of their disobedience. But in this moment, in this scene, along the Jordan River, this new era has dawned in the history of this covenant people. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And God is calling all people, not just to experience it, but to participate in it. The Israelites had experienced so much, 
But God now is calling them to a deeper place of participation in his kingdom. And that participation starts with their repentance. When we, when we experience something, we, we feel it, we observe it, we attend to it. And we either enjoy the benefits or the consequences of it, and to varying degrees, the, the results of our experience changes us for good or for worse. But when we participate in something, we have this deeper level of engagement and investment. And when we participate in something, we, we play an integral part in bringing about both the experience and the results. And we're more deeply transformed in this process. By preaching a, a baptism of repentance, John is calling the people to establish their hearts and minds as places where the Spirit of God can dwell and do its work. And we should note that Jesus begins the proclamation of his own preaching ministry with the exact same words. Having been baptized by John, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And when he emerges, he begins his ministry in Galilee by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I would go so far to say, brothers and sisters, that this could be the message of the entire gospel. This is Jesus' message. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn back to God. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is here. God has invited you and I not merely to experience Him, but to participate in the kingdom with him. And when we turn to him in sincere repentance, he equips us for every good work. The kingdom of heaven has come near, friends. We are experiencing the kingdom of heaven. Are are we going to be satisfied to merely experience it and perhaps subject ourselves to the disappointments when God doesn't move at the speed of our expectations and the way we want him to move? Or do we want to move together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ and participate in the kingdom of God, which is at hand and which comes near to you and I and the world we live in through his church? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan, proclaimed Jesus as your beloved son and and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Father, would you grant that all who are baptized in his name may may keep the covenant they have made and, and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior. And righteous Lord Jesus, who bears in your mouth the sword of truth, teach us, Jesus, not to shy away from vulnerability, but to confess our faults and to turn in repentance, 
that we might find mercy and, and be restored to health and find reconciliation with you who shines with glory and strength. And Holy Spirit, who enlivens hearts and minds and inspires new life in the people of God, sustain us with your presence. Grant us eyes to see your work in our midst. Inspire us to participate more deeply in your work at your pace and in your ways, moving together with you and one another for your glory. One God, living and reigning together now and forever. Amen.